Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver, and with me today from Create Tailwind as well, Bob Burnett. Welcome back, Bob. Good to be here, Jim. How are you today? Just for people that haven't heard your other episodes, tell them a little bit about your background, where you're from, but also your kind of uh, professional background because you've got an extensive experience. Yeah, um, so my background is primarily as a technologist. I'm uh, degreed as an engineer. I spent most of my career in engineering, uh, most notably as the chief technology officer for Gateway. Uh, for the younger members of the audience, Gateway was a rival of Dell's in the 90s and early 2000s, um, si- roughly similar in size. And, and I was uh, fortunate enough to lead product development there. And um, uh, now um, I still am heavily involved in technology. Uh, actually, Jim and I, in full disclosure to the audience, uh, own several ventures in the cryptocurrency space primarily in the mining space, um, which we may talk about some a little bit here still later today. Uh, but I'm also uh, a user of IBC and a practitioner of IBC. So I've uh, been doing, as a user, I've been involved with it since 2008. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, Bob, you you bring up some things that, um, that we always like to remind people when we talk about crypto, or we talk about real estate, or we talk about things like that we're not telling you to go out and put all your money in real estate or crypto. We're just saying here are things that other people are doing may or may not be right for you. And um, it's to to get you really the information. And then, um, you know, Nelson always liked to use this quote, if you know what's happening, you'll know what to do. And I'm going to start this off, um, Bob, and kind of, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there right now of what exactly is happening uh, in in our country economically, um, from an inflation standpoint, from a spending standpoint. I mean, what the heck is this government doing right now? So why don't you just take a few moments and kind of lay the, uh, the, the framework for what's happening out there? Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the quote from Nelson. Um, if you know what's happening, you'll know what to do. Because um, I had a little quote I wanted to share with everybody today that I think plays right into that. And it's from Henry Ford. And Henry Ford's quote was, it is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And one of the things that I found, because obviously I talk to people a lot about money and as do you, Jim, is that even people that you would expect to know a lot about money, even bankers, even people that are on Wall Street typically don't have a very good grasp of what's going on, you know, how the system really works. They're, they perform a role within a bigger system, but never really step back and say, what's really happening? And I believe there's probably no more important time in history um, than to take that step back and understand what's really happening. 
So I thought as a starting point uh, for the discussion today, I'll, um, I'm going to throw a question to you, Jim. So yeah. it's a, it's a, um, you know, most, and, and I want you to play the role of kind of probably the, the typical person because right. you have, you have a little different knowledge than most people, but maybe this will surprise you. So there's kind of a standard mantra within the mainstream economic thought, which is mainly Keynesian driven for you economics geeks, um, that inflation is a necessary component of economic growth. So it said, you know, in fact, they'll even almost try to say you measure an economy almost through that, that you have to have it. You have to have this new money in the system to fuel it. Now, I would not be an advocate of such a theory. Um, so I did a little research. It, um, if we go back to the start of our country and, and you possessed $100, it had a certain purchasing power. Now, if you fast forward 120 some years to the year 1900, can you guess how much purchasing power or how many dollars would be required to have the same purchasing power. In other words, how much inflation occurred over the first 120 some years of the nation's history? I'm gonna say zero. You're very close to right. Um, and I bet it's surprising a lot of people. The, the answer is 3.7%. Um, so from the birth over of the Over the nation, entire time. Over the entire time period. The, in the birth of the nation, the first 126 years, we had 3.7% inflation. Now, clearly between 1776 and 1900, we had tremendous economic expansion. We, 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 <laughs> we added several states. We, we uh, saw the birth of new industries. We saw the beginning of um, the industrialization. We had major economic um, advances, major agricultural advances, major industrial advances. Yet the economy, if you measured it by this standard, they'd say, well, you know, it, it was only 3% inflation. So I, I say that because um, it's clear, if you just look even at our own country's history, that inflation is not a necessary component of economic growth. Now, from the next 120 years, do you know how much inflation occurred? Um, I'm going to guess and say, I'm just going to take a wild guess and say a thousand percent. Yeah, um, good guess. But um, that that same hundred dollars would now require thirty two hundred dollars. So thirty two hundred percent. So thirty two yeah. X, thirty two X in the next in the next phase and so what happened you know and so um you know this is not meant to be in a a, a a course in economic history but i do think it's important to understand that a lot of things happened and you know we we saw we saw the fed get created in 1913 we saw brenton woods happen in 1944 we saw an especially large inflection point um, uh, after 1971 when we left the gold standard. So there's a chart here um, and 
that I'm looking at as I'm talking to you, and it's it, it it's just a a a mountain, <laughs> you know. It's it's like going from the Great Plains to the Rocky Mountains. Like it 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 is just an unbelievable chart about inflation. So, um, I you know so what why why did this happen? Um, who and who is it serving? Well, I um, I found a little piece of history. Again, we're not. Uh, I'm I'm not trying to give a, a lesson here, but I found a piece of history that. I found fascinating, um, and it revolves around World War II, and it involves the United Kingdom. And as the United Kingdom started to realize that it was going to get sucked into World War One, it had a fund World War One, and the the powers to be determined that they needed about three hundred and fifty million pounds in order to fund World War I. So now at the time, for, the, for those of you in the audience, one thing to remember, it is, it, remember is that the gold standard was still in effect. Um, the British pound was the global reserve currency. And um, the gold standard essentially created boundaries around how money got printed. Essentially the, the British government couldn't just go create money out of thin air like governments do today. They, they were bound by the gold standard. So the, the, um, the government had to raise this money. So the first thing it did was raise taxes and it, it raised some taxes. In fact, it quadrupled taxes. So it kind of pushed the people to the edge but um, actually the 350 million was actually after that tax raise. So they still needed 350 million more. So they did at the time, which was the thing that, that governments did, which is they created war bonds. So it was really the only other way to raise money for ventures like that. When they created the war bonds, they first went to some of the larger banks in Canada um, and said, will you buy these war bonds? And they were able to, in, 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 it looks like coerce is probably the best word, coerce the, the, uh, the other banks to buy these war bonds. Then they created a public raise. So you could go buy a war bond and get about three and a half percent rate of return on your war bond. It was considered a, essentially a no risk investment um, by the people of that time. But the British people um, uh, were clearly a little leery. But I'm going to come back to that in a second, because as the war bond got issued, the newspapers and the people reporting on the issuance of the war bonds had all kinds of front page, head, page headlines about the overwhelming response of the public to the war bonds. In fact, the Financial Times, um, which many considered a, a kind of a bastion, it was the Wall Street Journal um, of, of the day um, and considered the pinnacle of journalism, had big headlines. I've actually looked at the headlines that said, war bond oversubscribed. 650 million pounds of interest in war bonds. Um, you know, hurry up and get your war bonds. 
So they, they created this perception that not only were people flocking for the war bonds, but there was this phenomenal support by the people of England to support the war because they were directly related, clearly. That uh, if you supported the war and you supported the efforts, then it was your patriotic duty as a citizen of England to, to do so. Well, um, the truth of the matter was they were grossly undersubscribed and that the Bank of England manipulated its money supply and it swept in and bought over half of the war bonds because the British people who the government was counting on to buy 250 million pounds only bought 90 billion, 90 million. So they bought only about a third of what they needed. And the media twisted this to make it seem like there was fantastic support for the war and fantastic support for the war bonds. The Financial Times was essentially in cahoots with the government to cover, to cover up this whole thing. It wasn't until uh, about three years ago that an investigator went in and realized that the books had been cooked, at which point about 103 years after doing so, the Financial Times admitted their, their guilt in the process. And, and then uh, printed a retraction of a story they had written in the like something like 1917, they were a retraction 100 years later of a story written that, that far ago. So the reason that I, I, I bring this story up today is that we have some real serious things happening a little over 100 years ago. We have, we have government in cahoots with media. We have uh, in fact, media actually turning into a propagandist as opposed to a, 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 a journalist. We had a manipulation of the money supply by, by the Bank of England. And I should point out that the, the, the result of that for the British people was catastrophic. That after World War I, England lost its status as global reserve currency and um, the, the country has basically never recovered as a um, superpower in the world. It, it really lost its whole status and you can, you, you can kind of trace a whole bunch of it back to this conspiracy. Um, and I, I think I can say conspiracy, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think I can say a conspiracy actually happened. It's been historically validated now. So um, I, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let it go there maybe and let you comment on it a little bit, Jim. But the, the reason I, I took us through that was uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna fast forward to some things happening currently, but, but the, the fact that a hundred years went by and everybody accepted this story and didn't dig into this story and that is, 
is I think part of what I want to talk about today, which is really about, you know, where's truth, what's really happening. Um, and, you know, maybe how do you start protecting yourself against things like this? Yeah. So I think that, um, that take us, I guess, to currently what's happening and you know, what, what people always want to know is, okay, how does that affect me? What's happening now? What's happening to my money now? And, um, again, staying with that original quote, if I know what's happening, then maybe I'll know what to do. Right. But, yeah. but it'll be clearer to me what to do. So, how is it similar in today's world in the United States um, and with what's happening and um, and what's the effect on the audience? Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's look really current events now. So let's, let's kind of trace just the last couple months. So um, on March 24th of this year, uh, excuse me, March 14th of this year, Janet Yellen came out and said, um, the U.S. risk of inflation is small and manageable. So headline from a Bloomberg story, okay? On May 2nd, some signals were kind of floating into the market that maybe what she had said wasn't true. So now she says, the Fed will monitor inflation and has the tools to control, control to control it, um, and that it is able to handle any inflation that results from President Biden's new spending bill. Hmm. That's her quote. Six weeks after the first quote. Two days later, the April results were were probably available to her, but not to the public yet. And she says, it may be that interest rates will rise somewhat to make sure our economy doesn't overheat. Sure enough, on May 12th, results come out. Inflation for April spikes to 4.2%, hitting a 13-year high. We won't go into it today, but by, by the way, we'll tell everybody here that uh, 4.2% is grossly understated. Um, it's a grossly understated number. What would you say the real number is, Bob? Just a, just uh, a ballpark. I, I would, I would put it in the low teens right now. Yeah. In the, in the 10 to 12%, probably somewhere in that, in that range. Um, so on May 5th, this, I found this very interesting just after April came in at 4.2, Yellen says inflation could reach 3% this year. Now, I didn't point out it before, but the Fed has a stated goal of 2%. In their, in their wisdom, they have determined that a proper economy grows at 2%. That's how they, right. they view it. And that inflation should be 2%. So her signal at 3% is... Um, well, you know, it's, it's going to run a little hotter, although April just came at 4.2, you know, but don't worry. On June 10th, the May numbers came in. They came in at 5%. 
So again, just in front of the announcement, she's saying, don't worry, it's only gonna be 3%. Ignore this 5% number that you're gonna see in a few days. It's gonna be three, nothing to worry about. On June 16th, her next, her next quote, um, I'm confident inflation, rising inflation won't be permanent. She says this testifying before Congress. In, and she also claims in most cases, prices remain below pre-pandemic levels. So the reason that I'm taking you through this, this is just a little like eight week window of Janet Yellen chasing herself, trying to retract and, and appease instead of telling the truth, which is, which is clearly what I think is getting difficult now is most people, because you asked me, Jim, what, you know, what is inflation? I gave you my number and I have, a, I have a reason by looking at home prices, by looking at what happens at the gas pump, by looking at what's happened in the S&P, um, especially in asset inflation. You, we see that much, much higher. They don't measure most of those things, by the way, when they say inflation. So um, they're trying to appease. They're trying to say, hey, don't look, you know, we're we're rapidly expanding the monetary system. Um, and by the way, most of you don't benefit from it, you know, and, and if, if you question us on it, we're gonna remind you about the $1,400 stimulus check we gave you. There, there is a massive, massive problem that's built in this country. I, I believe they've painted themselves into a corner. They've painted us into a corner, I should say that is gonna be very, very difficult to get out of. And that um, they are not telling us the truth. And I believe for the most part, the media is complacent in not questioning them about it. And so um, I think if we look back over the last hundred years, I started with that story about the Bank of England and World War I to say, this is the norm. This is what's been happening. It happened then, it's happening now. All the points in between that resulted in 3,200% change in the value of money over the 100 year period happened right under our noses and we as a society let it happen. And if we don't do something about it, um, uh, then, then uh, we have to accept the consequences. But there are things we can do about it. And I guess we'll, we'll maybe talk about yeah, that so in let's, a second. Let's talk about that. So, you know, just to be clear, that means if I have money sitting, sitting stagnant in Wall Street or sitting stagnant at my bank, what's happening to that money on a daily basis? Yeah, it's losing value. It's losing value. So, okay. Um, again, I like to keep going back to this. If we know what's happening, if that's what's happening, Bob, what's, what are some of the things that we can do? How do we fight that? So like, let's talk about, as you, as you disclosed in the beginning, we have a few businesses in the crypto space. Let's talk about how does crypto, uh, escape that? Yeah, well, and I'll, I'm going to talk specifically to Bitcoin too, because I think that there's there's crypto and there's Bitcoin. And for those of you in the audience, um, I'm going to distinguish them 
in a very simple fashion. Um, Bitcoin is money. Bitcoin is an alternative monetary system. Um, it's also the only decentralized, truly decentralized monetary system um, ever created. Other cryptocurrencies may talk about themselves being money. They may talk about themselves being decentralized, but that's not really true. Um, I believe there are several other quote unquote cryptocurrencies that can serve a useful function in the world. But I believe only Bitcoin has a chance to be money. And, and uh, by the way, as, as evidence of that, um, one of the most recent historical events, I would call it a historical event, is that the country of El Salvador has declared Bitcoin as legal tender. So, so Bob, isn't there um, isn't there an expectation that several other countries, as early as this week or next week, are going to do the same? Yeah, there is uh, legislation pending in Paraguay. Paraguay, uh, that that's what been, I was thinking. Yeah, that has been proposed. I I'm not close enough to Paraguayan politics to know whether or not it's going to pass. But um, if they need help with their mining. <laughs> what's the what's well, the weather like in Paraguay? <laughs> pretty damn good. <laughs> pretty damn All right. Good. Well, you know, I'm um, not that and you and are, I might have to go there, but we might have to send people there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, there. so, so, so think about that. Okay. Is right now, what did those countries have before? They had the U.S. dollar, right? Correct. They were and dollar so, when the governments printing money that's benefiting, supposedly benefiting people in the United States. But I'm in El Salvador. What does that mean to me? Yeah. Yeah. It means you got no benefit from the money, but you got diluted. And your, so, your, you your know, you got diluted. You ever watch like old movies, Bob, and you think, why would people have put up with that? There's no way that I wouldn't have put up with that. And I don't care whether it was Braveheart or whatever movie you you think about where there's injustice, you think I would not have stood for that. Right. Yeah, but absolutely. In, in America today, there's going to be a movie uh, made if there still are movies, um, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now or 200 years from now. And they're going to say, look how stupid these people were. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, it's going to yeah. reflect on the fact that we're a herd of sheep for the most part, that we're yeah. going along and we're enslaved by government policies and politics and overall evil people. Yes, yes. You know, I'm glad you used the word enslaved um, because um, as you know, Jim, I, I do a lot of speaking um, on macroeconomics and cryptocurrency. And one of the things that um, I'll, I'll often explain to people is that inflation is slavery because what your money represents your time. It, 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 it represents your work, right? At, at the end of the day, that's what it really is. Um, you, all of your possessions, everything you own, the, that value is a representation of that which you worked for. So if, if printing money dilutes 
that which I already own, that which I already exist, you're stealing my money. And if you're stealing my money, you're stealing my work and my time. And that is a form of slavery. That's exactly what slavery is, is stealing, stealing your life. Yeah. Stealing your I mean, life, think of, stealing it. It's a stealth so, tax without representation. Yeah. So we're basically losing value. So we're being taxed without representation, without an act of Congress, not even actually by the government completely. Correct. Right? Correct. By Correct. the Federal Reserve. Yes. Right? For Correct. the benefit of the Federal Reserve. Correct. So, um, you yeah. know, the, the, the thing that I find just fascinating is that no one in politics, because I think they're afraid of what would happen, really wants to explain this. And when you see, you know, videos like on YouTube or you read the book, um, The Creature from Jekyll Island, people, there's a lot of people out there that think, oh, that's just a rant. I mean, that, that's craziness. Yeah. That's talking crazy. I'm not a slave. Look at my house. Look at my cars. Look at my boat. Yeah. Look at my, I'm not a slave. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? Malcolm X explained that there are different kinds of slaves. You know, and he explained that the, the house slave in the, in the example he was using, the house slave lives in a really nice house. He sleeps in a really nice room, either in the basement or in the attic, right? He wears clothes that were that are really nice clothes. He eats food that is good food. Now, that person's really comfortable and they don't want to be free because they're comfortable. But the person that's in the field that can be beaten or killed or um, and has nothing, doesn't know how they're going to survive the next day, they'll die for freedom. So it's yeah. only until we are put into the field that we're ready to fight for freedom. Yeah. And, and the hard thing to do is to say, I'm comfortable, I'm a slave, and I don't want to be. And so I'm going to, I'm going to change the way that I'm doing things. You know, Bob, you said to me, um, and I've used this over and over again, is when you buy crypto, let's just say Bitcoin. Okay. Because, uh, and, and let me pause before I go forward on that is we're not talking about going out and investing in these, uh, and, and speculating on these coins that may rise, they may fall, they, and, and doing all of that, because you're basically doing the same thing you can do with penny stocks or stocks on, the, on Wall Street. We're talking about a currency, an established currency worldwide. Governments are, and countries uh, that, are, that are tired of the current system are using. Okay, so when I buy Bitcoin, as an example, you said, don't think of it as buying Bitcoin. Think of it as selling fiat dollars. So is that freeing me if I go buy Bitcoin? Absolutely, it is. You are seceding from the financial system, okay? which is interestingly a term we often talk about in IBC. But th that this would is make, a... make Nelson smile in heaven that you said that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you took us down this path, Jim, because um, I'm going to get just a little technical here uh, and, and then I'm going to wrap it in and tell you why I'm 
technical, more from an economic standpoint or financial standpoint. Be patient, audience. Bob is an engineer, so he's going <laughs> to not just tell us what time it is yet. Okay, so go ahead, Bob. <laughs> I'll do my best, guys. All right. So there's, there's something called a credit default swap. Okay. So a credit default swap is essentially insurance against an entity who's issued debt from defaulting on that debt. So in other words, if um, pick a big company like General Motors, they need to raise some money and they issue a bond and uh, they, they raise uh, $500 million on this bond. Well, essentially what you can do, and it's only done by big boys and technical traders, what those folks will do is say, I'm going to buy the bond for $500 million, let's say, but I'm also going to go buy some insurance against that bond defaulting so that if General Motors at the end of, let's say it's a five-year bond, at the end of the five-year bond, if they don't pay me all or part of it, I've bought insurance against that. Mm -hmm. So, So that's what it is in simple terms. Now that insurance contract is in and of itself marketable. So that let's say General Motors is considered a very low risk bond. So maybe the insurance on $500 million is $50,000, let's say. So it's a, it's a small percentage of that. But then a few years go by and um, some bad stuff happens and General Motors is bleeding money. And now it's starting to look like they might default on that bond. Well, the owner of the insurance could sell that insurance and say, well, hey, General Motors now maybe instead of having a 0.1% chance of defaulting on this bond, maybe they have a 20% chance of defaulting on that bond. So that insurance might be worth 50 or $100 million now somebody might place that much money on it. Mm-hmm. So then the holder of the credit default swap could say, hey, I, I, I would rather sell that contract. Now it's possible, by the way, the holder of the credit default swap, it doesn't even the bondholder. So he may look at that as saying, hey, I, I can make a lot of money, I'll sell it, okay? Now, credit default swap also exists for sovereign debt and meaning the debt of a country. Now, if you take all the debt in the world, all the debt in the world is four times the world's GDP right now. So what does that mean? That means that it would take all the world's economies, not just the US economy, all the world's economies working four solid years to pay off the accumulated debt around around that. Most of that debt, by the way, is sovereign debt. It's debt between uh, one nation and another, um, or one nation and a large financial institution. Most of that debt is denominated in dollars, most of it. So what does it mean? It, It means that if you look at the world's macroeconomic situation, it's a pretty scary place. Um, 
and very few people kind of, you know, kind of stand back and look at the whole thing and say, kind of, where are we? And they use things like the stock market is up, therefore the economy must be doing great. In fact, you know, we're, we're not political on this show. I would say basically every president, um, Trump or Biden included, tries to use that kind of mantra for people. Well, I'm sorry, but that's a completely misbased way to look at it. Um, I think, as you know, Jim, we teach people about this, even when we look at the own U.S. debt. What we have to say is our funded liabilities are $30 trillion, yep. roughly equal to the GDP of our country. Our unfunded liabilities, latest number I got was $160 trillion. Yeah. That is the Medicare and Medicaid expense. So meaning, I'm going to round up, we have $200 trillion of liabilities as a country. Our GDP is in that $30 trillion range. So we're actually worse off than the global average, right? The global average is four to one. We're about six-ish to one, something on that order. Um, so where I'm going with this is maybe what you have to look at is hedging the dollar because uh, obviously most of our audience here is in the US. So if you have your whole wealth in dollars, then what do you have that will rapidly appreciate if the dollar fails? And failure doesn't necessarily mean outright go to zero. What if hyperinflation occurs? You know, mm -hmm. there, are, there are 10 economies around the, I just studied this last night, 10 economies around the world where inflation is over 30% right now. Wow. Um, uh, Venezuela's at the top around 2,000%, although it's a hard one to measure it so, so high. Um, Lebanon is now right in the 100% range. There's other big countries like Argentina, for instance, back on the list for the third time in five decades. Um, so people in those countries are dealing with this right now. There, there literally are riots in Lebanon. If you don't follow the global news, there are riots in Lebanon where people are rushing banks, breaking down doors, breaking windows, destroying the banks because the banks destroyed them. They, they lost everything. Um, you know, those are people dealing with the 100% inflation. So you can, you can hedge by owning certain types of assets. In other words, you know, I think our, our, our folks in the real estate world would say, well, you know, if, if the dollar went to zero, would that asset appreciate in, 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 um, uh, in inverse way? In other words, you know, the, the, that would it, in whatever the new monetary, if, 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 it, if the dollar went up 100%, uh, in inflation, would the real estate go up 100%? Maybe not 100%, but it would it would insulate a lot. Yeah. Okay. So, but getting this back to Bitcoin, I would say Bitcoin is the equivalent of buying a credit default swap on the dollar. So I know we can't give financial advice, so I'm telling you kind of the way I'm looking at the world, saying, you know, if I... If I have, we'll just use a round number. If I have a million dollars, then 
right now, I need to have probably on the low side, I probably need to have three to 5% equivalent value in Bitcoin, because if the dollar crashes, I know that the, the Bitcoin will have a rebound effect orders of magnitude higher and that I will have protected my wealth through that. So if you're, you know, it'd be my suggestion that if you are a, um, an individual or you're a business or um, you represent a charitable organization, um, you know, that you look at buying some insurance right now and you can't, you can't buy a credit default swap. Why? Because a credit default swap in the classic sense is denominated in dollars. So right. if, if, if all goes to hell in a handbasket, you can't, you, you don't want them to make up for your dollars. You want to be in the alternative monetary system, or you want to have an alternative asset that has insulated you from that. And so, um, Wall Street won't protect you from that. Your bank won't protect you from that. There's no bond that will protect you from that. You know, you have to do something different. You have to be, you have to be bold. And as, as you said, Jim, you know, I, I know that there are people that when I, when I talk about these things, especially those that are maybe very successful, um, that, you know, probably have been, you know, monetary slaves, but at the highest level, they, they will think I'm crazy. They will think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but it's actually mathematically based, you know, that what we're talking about here, we don't have time to get out a whiteboard and go through the numbers, but it's mathematically based and people that, that trade credit default swaps, they know that. And by the way, some of the greatest proponents for Bitcoin are guys in the credit default swap market right now. Right. Right. So they, they get what's happening. You know, so Bob, I know we don't have time to go through this, but kind of wrapping this up is um, just for people in the audience that don't know, why can't, um, why can't Bitcoin be inflated? I mean, I know the answer, but, but just for people in the audience that maybe there's so many people out there that I talk to that say, Hey, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I mean, they don't, I mean, to the point where, setting up a Coinbase account and even buying Bitcoin is a, um, I don't want to say it's overwhelming to them, but it's stressful to them because they really don't even understand what they're buying. Now, I don't want you to go into what is Bitcoin, but yeah. kind of why can't Bitcoin be inflated? Bitcoin was created with a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 billion Bitcoin. There is a predetermined schedule by which that Bitcoin gets rele released to the world. And it gets released through the miners, by the way. And we're at a point right now where 18.75 million of those 21 million are already released. So in essence, it's already all out there and it cannot be expanded. And it cannot be expanded because it's secured by the mining network and the nodes. And there are millions of those around the world and um, the code itself can't be changed. That part of the code is unchangeable. So, you know, we know that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 500 years from now, that it won't change. 
there is no central authority. I use the word decentralization. And so, well, can't they just change the rules? No, they cannot. Um, the code is unchangeable. There is no person or committee that can force a change. It, 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 it cannot happen. So it gives us this absolute certainty. If you own one Bitcoin today, you own one, one, 20, one, one 21 millionth of all the Bitcoin there will ever be. Okay. By the way, there are only, there are 50 million millionaires in the world. So that means there's not even enough Bitcoin for every millionaire to own one. So, you know, you can make your own conclusion about what that means for its potential. Um, if you even want to measure it in dollars, I don't want you, you, you said it very well earlier today, Jim, that um, we sell our dollars or we invest our dollars to make Bitcoin through mining. And um, that money goes into Bitcoin. And, you know, the only way we would ever spend it is to invest further in Bitcoin. Like the, 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 and, and it would be in that ecosystem that it's gone and, and it's not coming back. We don't, we don't want to sell our Bitcoin and buy back dollars and re-enter the system. That doesn't make sense. At least not that's what, what people sometimes do, right? I mean, people out yes. there that are speculating with crypto, they kind of really don't get it. What they're trying, what they're, they're, they're looking at the short term thing when they really should be looking at it more uh, philosophical, but also just practical that if you had a choice, there was a dollar and this dollar was controlled by the Federal Reserve. And then you had a $1,900, uh, uh, the year $1,900, right? right? Yeah. And it was never gonna inflate, right? Or never yeah. be able to be manipulated. Its value yeah. would be based on how many dollars there were in the world that are like that, yep. right? Yep. Then which one would you yep. which one would you buy? And would you yep. ever sell this one for the Federal Reserve one? Yeah. You would never exactly. do that. And the only reason that you would do that is you don't understand. And if you don't right. understand, then you don't know what to do. If you do exactly. understand what's happening, then you know what to do. And, right. and I think, Bob, that maybe next time we have you on, we can talk about that. But um, are, Bob, are there one or two books or, or a podcast, or um, I know you have some YouTube um, resources. How would people learn? Because, you know, we, we've even gone longer than we normally go here, but, but how, how long or how would somebody learn more about this so that, again, they feel confident and comfortable in taking action well there's an there's an excellent book called the bitcoin standard it's written by a, a phd in economics uh austrian economics named Seifedin amos a-m-m-o-u-s um and it it talks about the history of money and why bitcoin fixes uh so many of these problems and there's also a uh uh, a podcast series called the Sailor Series, S-A-Y-L-O-R. Um, and uh, they do a very good job. Um, I, would, I would also encourage people, you know, for instance, uh, t Twitter is the heartbeat of the Bitcoin community. And so if you want to dive deeper, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, very active on, in the Twitter community. Um, and uh, my, 
my uh, moniker is boomer, B-O-O-M-E-R underscore B-T-C. Um, you can find me there. And uh, if, if you follow me, I'll, I'll, I'll regularly be giving articles and, and suggestions. Um, I've, I've, got, I've got a blog now that you can find through that, that Twitter series where I'm, I'm writing regularly about various Bitcoin topics. Most recently, um, China's, China's actions relative toward Bitcoin. So if you want to dig a little deeper into, into that, I've written three articles in the last couple of weeks on that. We'll put that in the show notes too, Bob. Um, but you know, Bob, I think we could talk about this for a day, probably or more. I know you could, and we could, and we could pick <laughs> into and dig into your knowledge of what's going on with Bitcoin and economically what's happening in the country. And you know, for for people in the audience, you know, a lot of times when we're doing interviews and it's we're scratching the surface, and I really like that this went a little deeper because. Um, we want to make you feel uncomfortable. This is this this is happening, and again, we 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 can put our head in the sand and say it's not happening. It's not happening. That's herd mentality. And this podcast is break away from the herd, right? Break away wealth, and you you have to break away. And the way that you break away is you educate yourself on what's happening. And so, Bob, I really appreciate you coming on and, um, and sharing, uh, you know, the, I know the amount of time and effort and um, research that you put into Bitcoin. And um, um, so I really appreciate you spending that time. Any famous last words before we wrap it up? Um, just that uh, when you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. That's and right. Yeah. And I, I think that you can ignore what's happening. Um, you can say, I'm not going to buy Bitcoin or I'll get to that someday, but it's getting away from you. If, if that's been your mentality, then good luck um, because the world is changing at an unprecedented rate. And so, um, I, I hope the people listening to this podcast, I think most of them are people of action and uh, it's time for action. It's time, it's time to learn and make your choice. And if your choice is to stay in the existing financial system, okay, you know, but you've, you've made that decision of your own accord. Um, but I think very few people will research this topic thoroughly and reach that conclusion. You know, that's two weeks in a row that, um, that our guest has said, the most important thing is to take action. So I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Like I said, Bob Burnett, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Bob and I are about ready to get hit with uh, some type of tropical storm. So uh, Bob's uh, view out the back uh, of his lake behind his house isn't going to look like that very for much longer. But but just like everywhere else in the world, they always kind of, not always, but 99% of the time overestimate the impact of weather uh, for, for our area. But uh, so until next time, Breakaway Wealth, I'm your host, Jim Oliver. Thank you again, Bob Burnett. Nothing good happens in the herd. So let's get out of it. Let's break away. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.